Welcome to Cold Case MHS, Wrong Time, Wrong Place Mistakes. I'm your host, Randy Hubbard, an instructor of Cold Case MHS. And I'm your co-host, Ashton Gigliotti. And we thank you for listening. Growing up in Fairfield, Ohio in the 1980s, okay, I know, I just showed you my age, but Fairfield was a strong blue-collar community with pride in its city. It seemed like a simpler time. When my friends and I said we were going fishing, it meant we were going fishing. Somewhere along the way, going fishing took a whole new meaning. For Chelsea Johnson, going fishing brought on a deadly catch. What were you doing when you were 15? You were most likely in your first couple years of high school going to football games or homecoming. Or maybe you were doing homework or spending time watching movies. Well, that was not the case for Chelsea Johnson. Chelsea was a healthy 15-year-old girl with a very unique upbringing. She lived in an apartment on Southgate Boulevard in Fairfield, Ohio with her mother, brother, grandparents, and a mysterious stepfather. Area called Southgate Boulevard, which was um, not, not a poor area, but it was cheap housing, let's put it that way. In fact, I lived there when I was first teaching. I didn't have much money, so I lived in these Southgate apartments, and that's where they, they lived. She was known to be a very kind and sensitive young woman. Chelsea had dreams of one day becoming a tattoo artist with her younger brother, Ryan. She didn't need an education because she and her brother were going to be tattoo artists. So being 16 myself, I know for a fact that at 15 I didn't have a plan for myself or for my future. But her having a plan at 15 and her wanting to get out of where she is now and like just build herself into a new person with this passion that she has is, is obviously incredible for someone so young to be able to figure out what they want to do in their future, especially something so special as a business with a family member, like her brother, or just finding something that she's so passionate about that she wants to make it into a career at that young age of 15. And that's something that a lot of people don't learn, even when they get a lot older than that. So that's unfortunate that somebody has a plan, especially in her situation, which we'll hear about. Her situation wasn't good, and that was a plan for her to get out. The other thing that is very disheartening about a story like this is you have a young girl that has that plan that dies so young and so violently that just seems to me unfair yeah i mean doing the podcast and seeing all the cases that are coming in that we have to talk about we see that there's a many cases like this where there's young people with such potential and such heart for some passion or something along the lines of that and we just see them never be able to fulfill their dreams or fulfill their expectations for themselves because they're just cut off. They're not able to do any more. And like seeing a bunch of cases like this, it's honestly painful 
to be young and just imagine myself not being able to myself or people around me like not being able to grow into themselves or figure out what they want to do with their future yeah you know one of the things as a teacher is that unfortunately the longer you go in teaching you're going to have students that get into car accidents or something tragic happens to them or someone in their family but it's very rare that you have a student that that dies in a way like this and i just can't imagine what that would be like On April 15, 2012, Chelsea Johnson went missing. She claimed she was going to a convenience store and never came home. Her mother reported her missing 24 hours later, and her body was found the next day at a local creek, stabbed to death. As we share this tragedy, we will be mentioning clothes we received from both the principal of her school, Bob Polson, and the secretary of the school, Linda Shaw. We will also be pulling details we received from an online forum on a website called justiceforkaylee.org. All the details we received from this website were anonymous and mentioned news articles as a secondary source. So first we're going to kind of talk about who she was and what we knew about her. So the first part that we really dove into was her home life and the people that she surrounded herself with. And so we tried to research into her family and these were kind of the key people that we found and some of the information that we found. So first was the brother. So we didn't know a lot about her brother. Supposedly he was 11 when she went missing. Her brother's name was Brian. She also lived with her mother, Vicki Feibel, who originally we tried to reach out to as she had gotten in contact with us a couple years ago, but she never responded. We found she had a rocky relationship with the police during the investigation of her daughter, them trying to point fingers at her throughout the entire investigation, but we'll discuss that later. Her stepdad supposedly found the body with his son, as stated in multiple reports, but a specific name of who he was is unknown and wasn't listed in any articles. We are unsure if he's still with Vicki Bible or how long he was a figure in Chelsea's life. We don't know much about him at all. So her father was not mentioned in any of the sources that we were looking at, like the forum and the news articles, but once we received the autopsy report back, we later found her father's name was listed. His name's Sam Jeffries. And when we interviewed Bob Polson, the principal, he also told us that her father had never really been in the picture. So with the stepdad, he was a big question mark the entire investigation or the course of our study of the case. Obviously, Vicki Feibel and Chelsea Johnson have different last names, but her son, Brian, also had the last name Feibel. So we assumed there was another man in the picture with the last name Bible. Vicky's parents' last name were Johnson. That coincides with Chelsea's last name. There was a lot of differences in stories where half of the time he was called a boyfriend, half the time he was called a stepfather. So we don't know if he was actually married or part of the family. And then, of course, he was supposedly the one that found the body. But some reports said that he found it with his son. But of course, Brian was 11 years old, so we don't think it was him that he would have found the body with. And then also, it said that her boyfriend and then her neighbor found the body. We find this a little suspicious because each story that we've looked at is different regarding the stepfather. We've gotten tips that he was involving Chelsea in like drug deals and stuff. As we listen to the confusion and the family dynamics, of this section. Family dynamics play a big role in how things happen in your family and unfortunately with this there's so many people 
that are involved based on divorces and remarriages and who's dating who and who lives where, which gets really confusing. And as a investigator, they have to go through all those leads. And we kind of have to do the same thing, and it gets confusing. I remember reviewing this case, and I remember hearing this section and being, that is complicated. Just hearing, like, all of the different points of view and all of the different stories, it's just, you can imagine, I mean, sometimes in these cases we think, oh, the police overlooked this, or this is so obvious, like, how could they not see that? And then you see situations like this, where there's so much information and so much contradicting information, and you're like, wow, yeah, that would probably be super difficult to deal with. Right, especially when you're looking at media sources and things like that, and then when you read news articles or posts of some sort, and they contradict or they have different results. In other words, who found her and who said they found her and where they found her, when nobody really knows for sure. You can see where this can lead a case down the wrong path. Talking to the principal, when we asked about the stepfather, he said that he never met him. He never saw any sort of paperwork that stated his name and that he did visit their residence once and saw a lot of unfamiliar people in the background. It's a small school, so he knew almost everyone in their families. But he said he did see a man in the background but couldn't recognize him. The principal also said that he had never met the father, never seen the father or heard of the father, and he had never ever been in the picture. And the only reason we know his name is because of the autopsy report we later found. So we've been mentioning the principal a lot. I think that we're probably going to now shift to her educational history. She went to Fairfield Option Academy, which is basically kind of like a secondary school. It's more where they're training you to get in touch with a career rather than your typical four years of high school. The principal, as we've been mentioning, was Bob Polson, and he shared that she was not in the best academic shape when she came. She was failing nearly everything, and she was almost a victory student, if you will. She really succeeded at this school, she was doing well, and she was working in the school store, which was run um, a lot by the school secretary, Linda Schalk, who we also spoke to. And this school was really small, it was about 90 students in total, and it was, I believe, five years of, five yeah. years of going instead of four years of a typical high school. This small school made it easier for everyone to be connected and kind of have a history. The school also no longer exists right now. It blended with an actual training school instead of having its own because it was so small it couldn't continue running, which made it a lot more difficult to find information about the school because almost all records of it existing were kind of wiped off the internet except for like a couple news articles. But with the school store, she took a lot of responsibility in the school. Talking to the secretary, she said that Chelsea was very involved and would spend days there working and that majority of her schoolwork she would do at the school store. I think what makes some of these cases so difficult to find information about is that obviously time isn't going to stop for these cases, especially with this situation, the school merging into another one, so it makes the information like really difficult to find. Time continues on. And it would be fortunate for us if we had more information about this school and about the situations yeah it would but it's just the reality of it that things aren't going to come easily in cases like these which is why they had went cold in the first place yeah and we talked about this a little bit earlier that 
for the families, it's almost as if time stops. But for everybody else, it has to keep going, even including the police officers and the schools and everything else. When we lose that information, people die and move away. There's nothing we can do about that. It's just unfortunate, and it oftentimes can cause delays in solving a case. With all our research the past couple months, we have gathered a bunch of different dates and kind of created a rough timeline of what we believe happened. First thing that we kind of noticed was on April 14th, 2012, around 3.30 to 5.30ish, Chelsea received a text from a man named George Donald Davis offering her a drug called Valium and then later heroin in exchange for sex. George Davis was a local drug dealer who was currently serving time in prison. He got picked up in 2017 for prostitution, but while the case was occurring, he did get questioned by the police and admitted to procuring sex from a minor in exchange for drugs. According to the principal, he was rumored to have gone fishing with Chelsea often at the creek she was found at. We later found out that this might have been a cover for drug deals, and the principal said he also lived on Southgate Boulevard with the Johnson family. Okay. Now, according to Joey, when she said she was going fishing, she said she's going fishing sometimes with this, apparently this George Davis. And so that was also, again, a rumor I heard. I don't know for sure if he lived in that same apartment complex near that. So that might have been code for I'm going to get some money and get some heroin from George Davis. And so that's where they would end up going fishing down in that area. Now, that area is just a small little creek. A lot of the articles, when you look up Chelsea Johnson, George Donald Davis's name is one of the big names mentioned because he was, I guess, one of the original suspects. And also because if he was exchanging drugs for sex, it would be a big motive. And then on April 15th, 2012, around 11.30 a.m. to 12 p.m., Chelsea tells her mother that she's going to a corner store or a convenience store, and she was wearing black shorts, a printed and pink top, and a pair of black flip-flops. And this is the last time she was seen. Her mom told the news that she saw Chelsea at lunch and then she left and never saw her again. According to Bob Polson, though, there is video footage of Chelsea at this convenience store who was leaving with an older unknown man. And as mentioned earlier, they do believe that this unknown man is George Donald Davis, as there were also rumors floating around the school that it was him. And even though there is video footage, we cannot find any video footage. It wasn't listed on any articles or found anywhere, but we do believe it exists. And all the news articles shared the same information. So with the recordings, the reason we believe it might have been George Davis was Bob Polson said that the owner of the convenience store was there when Chelsea entered and said that he recognized the man that Chelsea was with as someone that often went and might have been living in the area. And because George Davis lived on Southgate Boulevard in the same apartment complex as Chelsea, we really only have him to point to. So one thing that we have said in all of our podcasts is that names will come up in public records, and oftentimes they're easy targets to accuse of doing these things. We are in no way accusing anyone of committing this crime. We are just going off the information that we have. We do not know if this person actually is a suspect. And again, like I said, we're not accusing him. We're just showing the connection to this individual and to Chelsea. So in that section, we heard that they were connecting this individual to Chelsea's case. 
the unfortunate part about it is that most of that information they're talking about is what we consider to be circumstantial evidence. Going back to our science class, showing us how smart you are, what is circumstantial evidence? Based on what I learned in forensics, <laughs> I would say that it is evidence, it can be physical or not, that doesn't directly prove guilt, but it does lead investigators to be able to make inferences about the case. Exactly. Evidence that points possibly this person was involved, but it does not point directly to them. That's something we have to be careful with when we look at this kind of evidence. Cold case, Chelsea's also got a very small frame. Every article that we read said that she was built very small. She was only about 100 pounds. That, that also made us think that she could have easily been taken in this convenience store and nobody might have not seen it. And from what we found, believed talking to the principal, it sounded like the video saw her going in, never coming out or coming out and then just not being there anymore. And then with her mom, there are also a lot of contrasting stories of how she actually realized she was missing. In some articles, in some interviews, she said that she made grilled cheese for her for lunch and then sent her off to get milk. Or Chelsea said she was getting milk at the corner store. Some said that she saw her in the morning and then she texted her that she was going to the grocery store and then never saw her again. Some said that she was working, so she came back to a note. The only really coinciding part of that is that she interacted with Chelsea before going to the corner store. So the next date we have is on April 16, 2012 at no specific time. So Chelsea is not back home yet. Vicki Feibel, her mother, visited her school, Fairfield Options Academy, and she started questioning people to see if anyone has spoken to Chelsea and ha or has seen her. So is disappearing for this long odd behavior for Chelsea was a question we had. She, it wasn't odd for her to disappear for this long. A bunch of her family and friends had said that she wasn't she, the yeah. type to run away or lose touch with people. And this was a direct quote from the forum that we mentioned earlier, justiceforkaylee.org. And then also, that's what Vicky heard from talking to her friends to see if she had contact with them. Talking to Bob Polson, he said that though he wasn't like interacting with her a lot, a lot of her friends said that she was very connected and wouldn't run away. Chelsea's mom spoke to Polson, the principal, who told her that she should probably go to the police. He also mentioned that she asked for a picture of Chelsea to give to the police and they ended up using a picture from the school store. We found this a little suspicious. There were two things that kind of seemed odd, that her mom believed that she was supposed to wait 24 hours after someone had gone missing to report it to the police. So this is a huge misconception that many people have. Her mother waited 24 hours thinking that your loved one has to be missing for 24 hours before you can report it. That is not true. She most likely got that information from TV. When I talked to a friend of mine, Scott Thomas, who used to be a police officer in Northern Ohio, he said, report that loved one missing right away. The police have to take the circumstances into consideration, determine if they should start looking now or if they should wait. In some cases too, it's, it's vital to get that information within the first 24, 48 hours, especially cases with missing children, because there is that benchmark for cases like those about time. And also that 
she never didn't have a picture of her own daughter and had to use her school picture, which kind of makes us question their relationship a little bit. The first red flag I had was that the mother, Vicki Feibel, asked me for a picture. So I'm thinking, you, sh you should have a picture of, of your daughter, but she did not have a picture of her daughter. So we had a picture of Chelsea in the store. We gave that, that's the, that's the picture that went out into the press and we gave to the police. I think that this was the big flag that we found with her mother and her relationship. We've noticed like throughout our research that her and her mom did have a very strange relationship. Originally, um, when we first started looking into it, all the interviews were her mom, and a lot of it is her saying that the police wouldn't help her, that she was desperate for help. She was the one originally who contacted us to look into it a couple years ago. At first, it looked like there were a lot of pictures online of Chelsea, but then after Olsen said that he asked for a picture, I went back, and on all the letters and all the like news clips, it was always school store picture that Poston gave her or it was a picture that was a selfie that Chelsea took that kind of looked that it might have came off of her Facebook or her MySpace or whatever but it wasn't one that like someone else would have had of her and other than that it was all in the memorials and stuff it was all baby pictures of her. So then on April 16th at 9 a.m. Chelsea's mom reported her missing and this was because of like we said before, she thought she had to wait 24 hours. And then on April 16th, um, same day, she, a family member or possibly their neighbor, Monty Applegate, notified the Johnson saying that he had seen Chelsea the day before, claiming that Chelsea was planning on going fishing at a local creek. Chelsea was known to go fishing often with her grandfather, which was seen in a lot of articles as well as the forum that we read. This creek was near Chelsea's apartment complex. This was kind of weird because the creek was not known for people to go fishing. I mean, it was really small and... It was shallow. It, it was like shallow. a creek. It was, it was yeah. like rocky and... Like the types that you would go on hikes with your friends like yeah. for fun, not to it sit. It was rocky. It, there was like no water. It was right in behind some neighborhoods and it was just really small. So this kind of pushed us into the direction like... Okay, fishing is a cover-up. There was no way she was going fishing. So what else was she doing? Yeah, with the creek, it was something weird that we couldn't really look too much into was that the creek was behind a ton of apartments. It was, like, you could see it from the outside, which if she did go fishing there, someone would have noticed if, well, she did die I there, but something happened. someone should have, someone seen, should have it, seen it, but or they didn't. Which also made us more questionable about this apartment complex yeah. mm -hmm. as a whole. Because, I mean, she was murdered mm -hmm. at this creek. And you're telling me that this creek is visible by the whole entire apartment complex and nobody noticed, heard, saw anything. Mm -hmm. But it might have played into, when we were talking with the secretary and the principal, she said that, well, it wasn't that surprising that she would have gone to that creek because that specific spot that she was found in, in the creek, was popular with the kids at Fairfield Options as a, like a kind of a drug meetup, a drug spot. People would go there to do things that they weren't allowed to do, you know, drinking, getting high, um, meeting with people there. And she said that she heard people say that they would often say they were going fishing at the creek as a cover to deal drugs with whoever their dealer was, and that George Davis was a popular name in the school as someone that people knew 
Chelsea was involved with. So this part of the story really kind of gets to me is the fact that nobody saw anything and she was able to be taken away from her apartment and then killed in a place that a lot of people supposedly went to. Yeah, I mean, it. they say that the creek was a popular hangout spot. It's just, it's hard to believe and hard to think that something so tragic and so violent can happen in a place that's supposedly bustling with people or a place where someone should have or would have seen something and you just have to think it's it's right time right place with situations like these and it's just unfortunate that things had to work out in the way that they did this creek does have a history of crime in fairfield ohio because on august 30th 2012 a young man named joey oakley was murdered at this creek oakley was actually a graduated student at fairfield options academy which we found out through reading a ton of articles originally the police stated that there was no connection between joey oakley and chelsea johnson but when I found out that they went to the same school, to me, that was a big, really important because there was 90 students at this school and two of them were murdered at the same creek. So after we made this connection, we decided to seek out the principal and it was a bigger priority for us. And the principal also led us to Linda Schalk who confirmed the, and also gave us further information on their drug usage, which kind of led us to this idea that Chelsea had a double life and what her family had said about her being this all-around well student. It could have been true, but she also was in this circle of drugs that was kind of happening at their school and in the area. And Joey Oakley was known to be involved with drugs. As the secretary said, his family life and home life wasn't very good and- His older brother was mm-hmm. in jail. He was living with his grandmother who, as much as she was a nice person, was not a good caregiver. I mean, the secretary was telling us that she went over there one time and it just, it smelled like weed and she asked the grandma, she was like, do you know what weed smells like? Because your house (laughs) smells like it. And the lady didn't know and she didn't know all of this was going on in her house. So as much as he did have a home and food and shelter, he really didn't have his basic needs met. Yeah, so I'm gonna kind of move on to the uh, autopsy report that we got. So. I had contacted the coroner's office and I sent them a FOIA request for the report. It took them a while to get back to us. Almost Um, two months. Yeah. And so once they finally got back to us, they were like, yes, we will give you the report, um, but it's going to take a little bit because we need to redact a few things. So that took about another month, so it kind of delayed us, but once we finally got the report, Um, We found that a lot of things were redacted, like the toxicology report. Anything um, about her upper trunk stab wounds, anything that had to involve her chest area. I didn't mention the number of stab wounds as well. It It was all blacked out. pictures and a bunch of stuff like that. But we kind of connected it with Joey Oakley because from the report, the autopsy report, it was stated that the cause of death was due to her stab wounds in her upper body because of bleeding out. And then Joey Oakley's cause of death was he was shot in the head. Joey was found in that creek bed with his hands across his chest. And I believe either sitting there or kneeling there and was shot in the head. The paper said he was shot in the chest. You may be thinking it's hard not to see a connection between these two victims just based on location, but it's really hard to connect the cases, especially these two cases, just because of location. You, it does make you think, could it be the same person? And that's true because one, they know each other. They kind of were in the same circle. The only thing is they were killed two different ways. 
And if you're talking about somebody that is going to kill multiple people, they're most likely going to do it the same way. And in this particular case, Chelsea was stabbed over 30 times, which tells us a lot about our killer. And Joey was actually shot several times and left in a drainage ditch. And Chelsea was actually left out in the open in a creek bed. So it's hard to actually tie those two cases together. The way Chelsea was killed tells us a lot about our suspect. From our class, what do you remember about what we said about these type of crimes? I remember talking about how multiple stab wounds are signs of rage. For example, the infamous Nicole Brown Simpson case, she was stabbed so violently, it she was almost beheaded and she was mutilated so badly. So we can understand that the relationship between killer and victim was extremely personal. The secretary also had some theories about her funeral and who she saw as she mentioned multiple times that Chelsea's family didn't have a lot of money and they didn't have money for the funeral. They were living in like a one bedroom or a two bedroom mm -hmm. apartment with like five people. And she was just surprised at how the funeral went played out considering the fact that they didn't have a lot of money. No, well, when we went to the funeral, first they said that there was no money for Chelsea's funeral. So, uh, of course, the school was going to try to get involved in the social workers and try to help, you know, get some money to get everything together. And then they had talked about cremation. Well, I attended Chelsea's funeral, and actually, it was a very nice funeral. And there was some pretty high-class guys sitting in the back of the, of the funeral, and it's kind of like, hmm, they didn't look like they belonged. They had very expensive clothes on and they was almost felt like they was checking out everyone that went in so it's like okay one of the teachers that we had at that time was this really big guy and they watched everything he did and i thought hmm, maybe they think he's a cop or a detective or something they just looked very very suspicious to me like they did not belong there so with all the information that the secretary told us about the funeral it really made us think that drugs did play a big role into this murder we still don't know much about it and we're still researching about it to try to find more information but as of right now that's kind of where we've been drawn to the fact that her funeral was extravagant is really not unusual because most people want to make sure that the funeral arrangements and the cask is worthy of the person that has passed away now in this previous section they connected it to possibly those people involved with the drug circle but we also have some other theories one of them was the fact that most parents when they lose a child they feel awful so we theorized that maybe her parents splurged on her funeral to show their remorse for possibly maybe allowing her to get involved with a rough crowd or with that drug circle that we were talking about a couple seconds ago Another theory we had was a simpler one, just generosity of extended family or even just kindness from the community that money was funneled into the funeral. Right, and her picture and her story were all over the news. Who knows where that money came from? Hopefully it's the third one there. Hopefully it's the uh, fact that there was generosity to pay for that. From all the information we have gathered so far and the research and people we've reached out to, um, we haven't come to any conclusions yet, but we are trying to connect all the information. We have found that um, we've kind of steered away from Joey Oakley and Chelsea's case being very connected. These cases are already difficult enough to figure out. And in this particular case, when I kind of looked at it, I noticed the police and the prosecutor or the district attorney were actually fighting 
in the news. They both had their own press conferences and contradicted each other, almost as if they were fighting. You can kind of see how that would be unfortunate for this case, especially because it would draw attention away from the focus of the case, which was figuring out what happened. And instead, they focus on the drama of the argument between two important people in this case. A quick update on the case. Chelsea's case is still considered to be open and under investigation. They have not taken any evidence to the grand jury to indict anyone, so there still is not a suspect to be named in her case. But we did get a hold of the prosecutor, and he gave us information on a case that he's working on now in which they use DNA evidence very similar to that of the Golden State Killer case. And he said that this is going to be really relevant in the near future in Chelsea's case. So hopefully they're getting some evidence retested and hopefully soon they will have some evidence to take to the grand jury and name a suspect in Chelsea's case. We would like to thank Bob Polson and Linda Schalk for taking their time to speak with us and giving us a lot more information about Chelsea's case and further our research. We would also like to thank all the news articles, the forum, and all the information that was given to us, including the autopsy report. All this information helped us piece together what happened to Chelsea Johnson on the day she was murdered. Chelsea Johnson deserves justice, and if you know anything, please, please contact the Fairfield Police Department. Or if you don't want to talk to the police and you would rather us relay that information to the police department, you can contact us at Cold Case MHS. I will put all that contact information in our show notes at the bottom of this page. I want to say a personal thank you to Mr. Bob Polson. Bob Polson did a great job working with our students on this case. I have a really personal connection to Mr. Polson. He was my mentor in high school. He was one of my coaches. He was one of my teachers. Went on to become a principal at several different schools. And not only that, he's a strong family friend. And we really appreciate his friendship and the fact that he was willing to talk to our students. Bob, I just want to say thank you for all that you have done for us. I also want to thank the Butler County Prosecutor, Michael Moser, for reaching out to us and giving time out of his day to talk to our students. That means a lot, and I think our students learn a great deal from him. The artwork for this podcast was created by former student Emma Holbert. Some of the music in this podcast was created by Purple Planet Music, and the theme song was written and performed by a former student, Jenna Brandt, and produced by Noria. This song and all of Jenna's music can be heard on all music streaming apps. Thank you for listening to Cold Case MHS. And tune in next time when we talk about Buffy Joe Freeman and a really bad night at the park. Wrong time, wrong place, mistakes. Cold Case, now a chase, no breaks. Unsafe is the faith in the faith It's a cold case It's a cold, cold case You're as sick as your secrets And a lie can't conceal it So deep sinking Stuck overthinking Here to inform you That your fantasy is over Won't close on your torture, no Feel eyes on you
days Cold case, now we chase, no breaks Unsafe is the faith in the faith It's a cold case It's a cold, cold case Feel eyes on 